1992, a company called Larson Camouflage revolutionized the world of Western art. Up until that year, Larson was known for its environmental design with Disney theme parks and museums. But most scholars maintained that their greatest work was unveiled in Denver. And soon, its influence swept across the nation. And here is an image of this impeccable masterpiece. So if you haven't caught up by now, I'm talking about the invention of cell phone towers being disguised as trees. And they are everywhere in the United States and they are fooling no one. I mean, look at these. If you were driving by, I'm pretty sure you would immediately notice that unlike the rest of its surroundings, there's definitely something different about that tree right there. It's way taller, the color is off, and there's these satellites sticking out of it. Similarly, while reading the Bible, there are some weird trees we run across that cause us to pause. Levitical laws that ban cooking meat and milk is a weird tree. The story of how one kid fell asleep during a sermon, fell off the second story of the house and died and was raised back to life is a weird tree. And in a biblical forest where God is working to make all things new and rescue the world from evil, sin, and death, Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 through 15 sticks out like a really, really weird tree and just doesn't seem to belong. Uh, Timothy 2, 11 through 15 is an extremely controversial passage that has caused debate and division among Jesus' followers. Especially in the last 50 years, how we have interpreted this text, applied it to our communities, or even how we have ignored it has an impact for better or worse, on what people think about Christians, the church, Paul, and most importantly, Jesus. And so with that said, this morning we're going to read and break down this passage carefully and prayerfully together. And unlike most Sunday mornings, today is going to feel more like a seminary course than a sermon, but stick with me here. I promise it's not going to be dry and boring. There will be no assigned homework at the end of this message. And by... 10 a.m., 11.30 a.m. at the end of this video. Uh, whenever you watch this video, it's going to be about an hour. You will know the definition of hapax legomena. Uh, but most importantly, if I do my job correctly, you'll walk away with a deeper appreciation for God's word and with greater clarity on God's vision for mutuality between men and women. So without further ado, let's read this really controversial verse together. And... Don't go away because I know it's going to sound really harsh, but just stick with me here. So here we go. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Don't leave yet. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. So let's just be real here. Who feels inspired about what I just read? I'm sure uh, no one has ever taken a picture of these verses with their pumpkin spice latte and posted it on Instagram. I'm sure none of you are uh, saying to yourselves, wow, this is such a great verse. Why? Because it sounds like Paul's a jerk here and his words raise a lot of questions, including, is Paul serious that a woman's place is to be quiet and to be in submission to a man? Are, are women banned from pe preaching in the church? Is Paul blaming Eve for the fall? He just said Adam was not the one who was deceived, it was Eve. 
So, so is, that, is that for real? And what's this whole thing about women being saved in childbirth? That's just odd, Joe. What, what's going on with that? The best way to begin answering these questions is by considering two things. Uh, number one, the entirety of scripture and its vision uh, for mutuality. And number two, the historical context of Paul's letter. Jeff talked last week about how when it comes to women in ministry, we need to see uh, the entire force of what the Bible has to say. And what the Bible says is that God created men and women to be mutual partners in serving and stewarding all of creation as his image bearers. The inequality between the two is not a feature of creation, but is the consequence of human sin and the fall. Therefore, anytime a woman serves as a leader, judge, prophet, deacon, and yes, even as an apostle in scripture, this is a sign that God is faithfully undoing the inequality between men and women that the fall has made normative. And here's the thing, Paul clearly understood this. In fact, he was so convinced that the death and resurrection of Jesus changed the social fabric of human relations, so much so that there was no longer a barrier between Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but all are one in Jesus Christ in the church. This being the case, it is impossible to read Paul who partnered with Junia, the most esteemed of apostles, who partnered with Priscilla, a leader of the church, who partnered with Phoebe, who was the first to teach a letter to the Romans, and so many other women as someone who did not approve of women teaching and leading. So we have to ask ourselves if there was a reason why Paul wrote what he wrote. Or in other words, what was the historical context that occasioned the letter to Timothy and the reason for Paul instructing Timothy on what to do about the women in his congregation. Well, if we look for contextual clues in the letter, it's clear that Paul has at least one pressing concern, and here's what he writes. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. In that same chapter, he also says this, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And, and just in case the point didn't come across, Paul also ends his letter to Timothy with this, hey, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. What we can gather from this is that false teachings have spread in the city of Ephesus. And so Paul not only tells Timothy to beware of this godless chatter, but to take steps to get it under control. And part of the solution, according to Paul, is to instruct women to learn in quietness and submission and to not teach or to have authority over men. So you might be wondering, hey, what, what is Paul uh, talking about? Why is Paul only picking on the women here? Well, it's not because Paul hates women, and it's certainly not because Paul is trying to say something about church leadership roles, but it has everything to do with the false teaching that was making waves in Ephesus and uh, specifically the significant appeal it had for women. And just, just so you know, we saw something similar happen here to men in the Pacific Northwest just 20 years ago. 
uh, Mark Driscoll of Mars Hill Church taught a hyper-masculine Christianity that countered what Driscoll called a Richard Simmons hippie queer depiction of Jesus that made men sissies and pathetic. Uh, to quote Driscoll himself, the problem with the church today is it's just a bunch of nice, soft, tender, chickified church boys. 60% of Christians are chicks, and the 40% that are dudes are still chicks. And unfortunately, this message appealed to a lot of men. Mars Hill had over 13,000 congregants each week at its height. But at the end of the day, it was a false, destructive teaching that elevated men at the cost of women. And something similar was going on in Ephesus during the first century. Ephesus was the capital of Artemis worship and the home uh, to the warrior goddess's temple. Many of its citizens believed that Artemis and the Amazonians, think Wonder Woman here, founded Ephesus. And according to scholar Ninjay Gupta, uh, this belief gave the city a unique quality of female empowerment. Artemis was beloved for representing female strength and because she had the power to keep women alive during childbirth. Alongside these popular beliefs, some scholars note that a revised creation account was also gaining traction in Ephesus. And this creation account basically taught that Eve was innocent of any sin and Adam and therefore all men were the ones who doomed humanity. So basically, the remixed gospel in Ephesus sounded something like this. Men ruined the world, women have more value, and don't forget to pray to Artemis. Now, before we label these beliefs as laughable and ridiculous, uh, can we take a moment to empathize with the women of Ephesus? Like any Roman city at the time, society was dominated by men, and the household was under the rule of a husband. And often this rule was domineering. It was culturally acceptable for husbands to abuse their wives. Uh, they were not expected to be faithful, and much of a woman's value came down to, could she produce a child? But there was also a catch-22 to this, because childbearing was also the most common cause of death for women, reducing the average lifespan of a first-century woman to their late 20s, mid-30s. So I want you to ask yourself this. If you were a woman living in a world ruled by predominantly men, You've likely experienced spousal abuse, your value was reduced to what you could produce, and you were aware of the risks of pregnancy but had to endure it anyways, wouldn't you also be tempted to subscribe to a false gospel that at least recognized your humanity? When Paul is saying is he wants women to stop teaching this. He's, he's talking about these women in Ephesus spreading these false teachings. And Paul's concern is that even though these teachings address the grievances of first century women, it twists God's desire for human flourishing. God did not intend for men to rule over women, but he also did not intend for women to rule over men. This is why Paul not only says, I do not permit a woman to teach, but he adds in the Greek, Ude atenten andros. Many interpret this to mean women cannot be teaching pastors, campus pastors, or even senior pastors. But here's the problem with that interpretation. The word for authority or ruling over, atenten, is a hapax legomena. There's that word. Which is a fancy way of saying that this word only occurs one time in the entire Bible. So if you want to say atenten means pastoral authority, 
and therefore Paul is saying women cannot exercise it, then what would help your argument is having at least one other example of where autotain is used in that way. Let me give you more of a modern example if I lost you in the Greek. Uh, let's say 2,000 years from now, we dig up a song called We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together. And scholars decide this song is about Jake Gyllenhaal and Taylor Swift has a habit of writing about her exes. If this was the only song scholars found of its kind, then you would say it's pretty hard to make that defense. You are basing it off of just one example. But if they also uncovered All Too Well, Style, Back to December, Mine, and the 2025 hit single, You Ain't It, Chief, then there might be enough evidence to establish that Taylor's lyrics are often referring to a specific individual. On the flip side, if none of these breakup songs existed, it would be poor scholarship to deduce that Taylor Swift songs are about her exes. And by the way, Cruel Summer slaps, so don't be thinking I'm trying to hate on Taylor Swift. But anyways, and likewise, here's the comparison I'm trying to make when it comes to Authentane. We need to establish that there is at least one other instance where it is used to mean pastoral ministry. And there isn't. There are 300 instances of the word authentane being used, and not once does it refer to pastoral ministry. There is no back to December for authentane. And in every single example, the word has a negative connotation. Definitions of authentane include to rule over, to impose, dominate, control, usurp, force, override, and even murder, but never pastor. So here's my point. If in 300 cases this word is never used for church leadership but describes a way of exercising authority that is abusive or lopsided, then it is likely Paul is using it that way too. So with this in mind, here's another way to read what Paul is saying. I do not permit a woman to teach a false gospel, nor for a woman to authentate, that is to rule over a man abusively. Why? Because tearing men down and raising up women may sound like a solution, but it's not the solution. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, vision for human mutuality, and Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. When read this way, you can see how Paul's point is not to blame Eve, but to correct the misunderstanding. And by the way, just because Paul says Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't, doesn't mean Paul thinks Adam is innocent or that he has the right to rule. After all, in Romans, Paul says sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, without ever mentioning Eve, and no one would read that passage and conclude Eve is without sin. So Paul's point here is not that Eve was deceived so that Adam should rule, nor is it correct to say that Adam was worse and Eve should dominate as some of the women in Ephesus were saying, but the truth is that both men and women are broken and we both need Jesus to forgive us and transform us so that we might do what God has created us to do to work and serve together as mutual partners and image bearers. In Ephesus, some of the women had it wrong. So Paul rightly tells Timothy, it's not their time to teach, but to learn. And by the way, that instruction that Paul, that Paul is giving to Timothy is incredibly countercultural. We read, learn in silence and submission and think, oh, women are being oppressed. But back then, 
It was usually only men who were invited into silence and submission to learn under the authority of a teacher. In a world where educational opportunities were limited for women, here Paul was saying that women in Ephesus should have every opportunity to learn correct doctrine. And until then, they should not teach. So what we have assumed to be an oppressive command is actually very liberating, liberating and equitable. Okay, so maybe you're thinking, how do I know Joe is not just misleading us here with his fancy Greek? Why should I trust that what Paul is saying in Timothy 2 is not universally applicable to all women, but specific? Well, the answer is because you don't need to know Greek to realize how weird verse 15 is. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Paul doesn't just instruct women to learn, to stop spreading false doctrine, and to consider how evil is also in the wrong, but he also mentions this really weird passage on childbearing. And if this passage is about banning women from serving as teaching pastors, then we can all agree that verse 15 is super random, out of place, and doesn't seem to help Paul's argument at all. But if Paul is trying to correct false teaching in Ephesus, then verse 15 makes all the sense in the world. And in fact, it demonstrates that Paul has empathies for these women. Because here Paul is naming that specific concern about the damage and dangers of childbirth. And letting these women know that Artemis doesn't have any power, but Jesus does. And Jesus cares about their experience as a mother. And Jesus will be with them in childbearing. And we often miss Paul's pastoral tone here, not only because of our lack of historical knowledge, but because of faulty translation. In the Greek, Timothy 2.15 reads like this, a woman, singular, will be saved through childbearing if they, plural, abide in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. In the NIV, the translators chose to make woman, plural, so that the passage reads, women will be saved through childbearing if they... And honestly, uh, this, this falls short of communicating the full intent of what Paul was saying because the NIV makes it sound like Paul is only commanding women to abide in faith, love, holiness with self-control. But what the Greek shows is that they is referring to both husbands and wives and not just the women. And I know this is so peculiar and a small detail and I'm nitpicking things, but it matters because back then, remember, Husbands were not required to be faithful. They did not always show love. They lacked in holiness. And by the way, they always got the final say on when their wives should have children. So it matters that Paul is also instructing husbands here in the day because their actions literally impact the well-being of their wives and they held much of the power to dictate the health of their marriage. Paul is offering both a spiritual and practical solution to the problem of childbirth. Wives, trust in Jesus for protection during childbirth, but also husbands, be faithful to your spouse, love them, and care about what they are going through. Be holy and put their needs before your own and exercise some self-control when it comes to getting your desires met. Here, as before, Paul's goal is not just to put down women, but to advocate for mutuality between men and women. So what are some takeaway lessons in all of this. What, what, what should we learn from this entire exercise in breaking down Timothy 2, 11 through 15? Well, the first one is this. This passage is not about establishing male pastoral authority, but challenging both women and men to pursue God's vision for mutuality. 
This passage does not ban women from preaching, teaching, discipling, and exercising their gifts authoritatively in the church. But what it does ban women and men from is using their power abusively to promote gender inequality and placing one's hope and sense of security in anyone and anything other than Jesus. Here's the second takeaway. It is important to be familiar with the overall story of scripture and to have it serve as a foundation for understanding standalone Bible verses and not the other way around. Standalone Bible verses are a bad starting point for developing a theology or finding advice for life. Number three, the third takeaway, we should always read the Bible with a posture of humility and be willing to give up our own agendas, political commitments, and convictions should the word redirect us. If the Bible seems to always agree with us and our preconceived notions, we can assume we are probably reading the Bible wrong. So here's the overall summary of this. Here at Rainier View, the leadership is convinced that the overall story of scripture and Paul's words in Timothy 2 calls women and men to teach, serve, and lead in the church side by side. Not because our culture teaches us this, not because we are trying to get down with the times, but because this is God's desire for humanity from the very beginning. And so join us next week as we explore the so what and now what implications for RVCC and how leaning into God's plan for mutuality is what will allow us to reach every neighborhood and see them engaged by believers and transformed by Jesus. Till then, we encourage you to listen to these messages again, review your notes, uh, read the passages from both weeks one and two, and ask God to allow you to let the word speak clearly to you. Till then, God bless. <laughs>